Hello and welcome to the first edition of the Physical Attraction Book Club, something that I hope will become a more regular feature. Here I'll discuss what I've been reading, what I've been thinking about it, and hopefully in time we'll be able to see some books in advance and incorporate your discussion on them as well. The book we're starting with is The Attention Merchants by Tim Wu. This is essentially a history of advertising from the 1800s to about 2016 when the book was written. The framing here is that the question of advertising is about attention. A key mantra that runs through the book is William James, the philosopher who first wrote about attention in the 1800s. Here's how he defines attention. Quote, Everyone knows what attention is. It is the taking possession by the mind in clear and vivid form of one out of what seems several simultaneously possible objects or trains of thought. Focalisation, concentration of consciousness are its essence. It implies withdrawal from some things in order to deal effectively with others, and is a condition which has a real opposite in the confused, dazed, scatterbrained state, which in French is called distraction. And Wu's argument, which is hard to disagree with, is that we're all bombarded with stimulus, all the time, not just sights, sounds, actions, but also potential thoughts and ideas, and that you can argue our lives simply amount to the sum total of the things we actually, actively, end up paying attention to. In this sense, we ought to be really careful when we consider the competing forces that are trying to capture our attention. We live in an attention economy. Facebook is a company theoretically worth $640 billion, and it makes 97% of that revenue from advertising. Google is worth over a trillion dollars, and its revenue is 88% advertising. By the rough metric of GDP, advertising alone accounts for about 2% of the entire US economy. In 2019, just on online adverts alone, we collectively spent around $300 billion, which is a similar order of magnitude to the entire global effort to fight climate change in any form. If you include investment in renewable energy, sustainable transport, energy efficiency, and adaptation to natural disasters, that sat at around $500 billion in 2019, according to the Climate Policy Initiative. So it's a similar order of magnitude is spent on online ads as anything that is even remotely related to climate change. Looking at it purely from a corporate point of view, Private finance has easily spent more on online advertising than anything climate-related, even with renewable energy a profitable enterprise these days. Advertising accounts for a huge proportion of what we pay attention to and what we spend money on. In looking at advertising through history, Wu gives us a series of vignettes, stories about how certain inventions arose. Here we have in 1833 the establishment of the New York Sun, a newspaper which realised it could become cheaper than its competitors by selling advertising and quickly descended into purveying 19th century clickbait, becoming filled with articles about murder and supposed sightings of aliens living on the moon. These were described as man-bats with wings that were doubtless, quote, happy creatures, notwithstanding that some of their amusements would ill comport with our terrestrial notion of decorum. Naturally, the business model of the paper demonstrates the value of using attention-grabbing content to support advertising business models, instead of relying on readers willingly being able to pay a premium for more upmarket and perhaps more accurate content. Of course, I need to only go to the weird section of the Daily Express to find they're churning out articles about a UFO that's just crash-landed in Brazil to get clicks. Some things never change. One of the more insidious tactics is demand engineering, selling people products that they didn't know they wanted. Initially, this was a pretty unsubtle pursuit. Claude Hopkins, who wrote the book Scientific Advertising in 1923, commented, quote, From our desks we sway millions, we populate new empires, build up new industries, create new customs and fashions, Our names are unknown, but there is scarcely a home in a city or hamlet where some human being is not doing what we demand. So that's typically unsubtle rhetoric, then, and the techniques and the tactics that were used were similarly unsubtle. For example, the phrase, always the bridesmaid, never the bride, was coined by Listerine in an attempt to sell its product. Listerine had originally been marketed as a disinfectant for medical use on the battlefield, and later as a floor cleaner, but this was proving unsuccessful. 
The new management in the 1920s invented the concept of halitosis, a word coined by one of the makers of Listerine, and preyed on people's fears of being socially isolated. A typical ad ran, quote, Edna's case was really a pathetic one. Like every woman, her primary ambition was to marry. Most of the girls of her set were married, or about to be, yet not one possessed more grace, charm, or loveliness than she. As her birthdays gradually crept towards that tragic 30 mark, marriage seemed further from her life than ever. That's the terrible thing about halitosis. You yourself rarely know when you have it, and your closest friends won't tell you. This campaign turned out to be an incredible success, with sales of Listerine rocketing up by a factor of about 80 after they introduced this halitosis-related advertising. In fact, the practice of regular brushing of teeth using antibacterial mouthwash, alongside marketing that you need a glass of orange juice in the morning to top up your vitamin C or if you feel unwell, these things largely came about and became so ingrained because of wildly successful advertising campaigns a hundred years ago. One of the real strengths of Wu's book, although this is really my metaphor here, is how it almost shows you how advertising can operate as a virus. There are core strands running through the DNA of advertising that remain the same throughout the years. For example, this practice of demand engineering is of course why branded clothes are worth anything today. You can draw a direct line between the snake oil salesmen of the early 1800s to supplement salespeople today. There are similar pseudoscientific arguments around how some chemical compound or other is necessary for your health or beneficial for your life, and maybe it just gets relabeled from snake oil to nootropics as the centuries pass. Similarly, the association of celebrities and the glamorous lives of celebrities to sell certain products, this runs unabated from the earliest film star celebrities to the modern day. Similarly, like a virus, there are always the same weaknesses to exploit in people. Just as many viruses can enter our bodies when we breathe in and attack cells in a similar way while these weaknesses remain, so the advertising virus has its own means of attack. Lurid, clickbaity content, evolving from graphic tales of murder and aliens in the 1800s to graphic tales of murder and aliens in 2020, with some quizzes and listicles thrown in. But Wu points out that advertising also goes through an endless series of acceptance and refusal, both as societies change and as technologies develop. There are strands of the DNA that persist and mutate and take on new forms in reaction to how people change and respond to the advertising that they're presented with. Wu's thesis is that as people adapt to advertising, they become too immune to it, leading to these cycles of refusing to be taken in by it before it adapts and finds new ways of reaching people. We saw this in the 1800s when the initial craze over the brightly coloured posters that festooned Paris changed over time. Luminous, brilliant, even blinding. Vivid sensations and intense emotions rapidly blunted, only to be revived again. This was the reaction to these bright and attractive scenes, which drew our attention through some of the classic tricks of the trade, giving the impression of movement, bright colours, attractive people, that kind of thing. With enough bombardment with these posters, though, what Wu calls the disenchantment effect sets in. Our ability to ignore things adapts over time, and this decreases the advertiser's power. But as Wu points out, this can be a more active form of disengagement, where audiences, when they feel that they are being overloaded, tricked, or purposefully manipulated, start to ignore advertising. And under these circumstances, an advertising bubble can burst. In Paris, the anti-poster movement lobbied the city to impose restrictions on where the ads could be placed, and one commentator said that, quote, a secret society of masked vigilantes will travel the world, chopping down posters on the stroke of midnight. Which jury would convict us for such an act of citizenship? Similarly, nowadays, the brutal tactics of 1920s Listerine don't work quite so well to engineer demand. Instead, we are subtly presented with lives and lifestyles that we are told to aspire to, and then these are associated with brands, products and services. In the 1950s, when everyone is watching one of a few TV channels, we're watching sitcoms that portray ideal families, American kitsch in the US. 
The adverts too show us ideal families. They're not marketing the specific virtues of a product anymore, but the virtues of a lifestyle associated with that product. Then the 1960s comes along and you have the counterculture. There are gurus like Timothy Leary who are encouraging everyone to turn on, tune in and drop out. There's this counterculture of radical individualism, the rejection of stuffy traditional moral values and a boring, conformist, consumerist, urban, stolid, workaday world. But what happens is that the brands follow the culture into the counterculture. Pepsi markets itself to a new Pepsi generation. It associates itself, bizarrely but effectively, with hippie-like scenes of nature and natural living. Typical adverts featured scenes of people living by rivers, in gardens, children milking cows. You've got a lot to live, and Pepsi's got a lot to give. There's a new way of living, and Pepsi adds the fuel. In 1965, Charlie Brown, the cartoon character, can't afford one of the fashionable, artificial Christmas trees of the era, but the sad little sapling that he is able to obtain is seen to embody the true spirit of Christmas. So this is an anti-commercial message that was nevertheless used to great effect to sell things, and further embed in people's minds the connection between Santa Claus and Coca-Cola in red and white, which sponsored the show. Wu points out what happened here. He says, quote, It's interesting to consider what vision the counterculture of the 1960s and 70s might have achieved if it could have reversed the commercialization of human attention. Its leaders aspired to an age when establishment advertising would wilt into irrelevance, carefully avoided as a form of propaganda. The public mind would attend to realities that couldn't be bought or sold. Nature, spirituality, friends, family, lovers. But industry calibrated an effective response and perhaps accurately read the public mood more than any guru. They had detected the essence of the spirit of liberation. For most people, they did not want an end of desire in a Buddhist sense, or a wish for a withdrawal from society in a monastic sense, or a spiritual longing that would turn them inward. Instead, after a decade of ultimate conformity, what had been uncorked was powerful individual desires and the will to express them. Above all, most simply wanted to feel more like an individual, and that was a desire industry could cater to, just like any other. End quote. In such ways, the attention merchants identify our desires, whether it's for the perfect lives presented on TV in the 50s, becoming individuals in the 60s and 70s, fame, influence, sex, community, meaning, purpose, and they convert these desires into an often false endpoint, an action that you can take to try and satisfy the desires, the will to purchase something. You want to express your identity, you want to feel better, you want to become smarter, you want to signify that you're part of a community, you want to signify that you reject consumption. Buy something. You can track through the decades as the virus evolves, taking on these new aspects, these new approaches to capturing our attention and evading our defences. And even this in the modern era is giving way to new trends, and you can see new versions of the cycle that Wu outlines. Here's an example that I think has basically since occurred in the years since the book was published. The internet loves meta-humour and self-aware irony, and so we have postmodern advertising, like that produced by Wendy's Twitter account, so Wendy's is the fast food restaurant in America. I just went there now to check, and one of the recent threads that they were talking about is asking about people's experience of being ghosted, a term in online dating where someone abruptly stops talking to you. Explanation there for the demographic of my audience that's older than I am. And ultimately what they're doing by talking about this in the same way that young people would talk about it is creating a persona of the brand as a character, perhaps some super depressed, extremely online millennial character, talking about the same things on Twitter as many other people do, with the same sense of weary irony. And in this sense, the brand is trying to be relatable in just the same way as Mickey Mouse is trying to relate to children 10, 50 years ago. In the age where our attention is captured by memes, the aim of these advertisers is to become a meme, 
And since one way to go viral is to attract attention by being incongruous or weird, that's what the advertisers have started to do. Take a recent thread on Twitter posted in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Quote, Friendly reminder in times of uncertainty and misinformation, anecdotes are not data. Good data is carefully measured and collected information based on a range of subject-dependent factors, including but not limited to controlled variables, meta-analysis and randomization. It can be difficult to know what to believe in a time when institutional trust has diminished and the gatekeepers of information have been dismantled, but it's more crucial now than ever before to follow a range of credentialed sources for both breaking news and data collection. All we currently have are limited and evolving metrics that experts are deciphering and acting upon, immediately to the best of their ability. This terrain leaves many openings for opportunists and charismatic manipulators to lead people astray by exploiting what they want to hear. You can maintain independent critical thinking towards institutions without dipping into fringe conspiracies that get jump-started by individual anecdotes being virally spread as data. It's not easy, but it's necessary to keep any semblance of responsible online information flow. Now this all might sound like fairly good advice on good media consumption in the midst of a pandemic where there's lots of misinformation floating around, but it was provided to the Twitter public at large by the brand Steakums, which apparently sells frozen meat. I think it's an American thing. They said, quote, We're a frozen meat brand posting ads inevitably made to misdirect people and generate sales, so this is peak irony. But hey, we live in a society, so please make informed decisions to the best of your ability, and don't let anecdotes dictate your worldview. Okay. End quote. Now, the incongruity of getting such technical sound and academic sounding advice on how to make decisions and think critically in the information age from a frozen meat brand was calculated because the surreal humour inherent in it made the thread go viral, which is why I saw it and why I've repeated it to you and just inadvertently advertised a frozen meat product to my audience that I've never seen or consumed in real life. And even this trend, the surreality of the online presence of these companies, has a backlash associated with it that may necessitate the development of something else. These days, when a big brand posts on social media trying to take on a guise or persona, even if they do so with layers of irony, there's an image that follows them around in the comments. A spider with laser shooting out of its eyes, creating an explosion, with the caption, Silence, brand. A mark, then, of the consumer, on Twitter at least, revolution against this new form of insidious advertising. Advertising takes its turn through propaganda in the wartime era. Some of the most dominant posters in our in our cultural memory are Lord Kitchener pointing at individuals saying, we want you to go and serve in the army. But again, we need to understand that these things are done subtly as well as obtrusively. Take what journalist Walter Lippmann pointed out. Any communication can potentially be propaganda in terms of propagating a view. Because it always presents one set of facts, one perspective, fostering or weakening some stereotype in people's minds. In most areas of life, he believes, we overestimate our capacity for independent thought and end up just choosing between manufactured alternatives, whether we're evaluating some product or service or else deciding on a political position. The same techniques used to sell products to capture attention are also used to shift attitudes throughout society. One of the ironies defined in this cycle is sometimes the very mechanisms we try to use to unplug ourselves from advertising are what allow ads to return. The invention of the remote control was supposed to be a liberating thing, Woo Chronicles. People would be allowed to choose precisely what content they consumed, flicking away from ads. The invention of the product was supposed to allow us to take back control over our own attention, to focus our attentions more precisely on the things that we wanted to see. But instead, it leads to channel surfing, as Wu describes, quote, 
making it almost effortless, practically non-volitional, to redirect our attention by sending a simple command to the finger in response to a cascade of involuntary cues. The voluntary aspect of attention control can disappear entirely. The channel surfer is then in a mental state like that of a newborn baby. Having thus surrendered, the mind is simply jumping around and following whatever grabs it. A state of distracted wandering is not really a bad one for the attention merchants. It's far better than being ignored. The distracted state is a part of what so many algorithms and so much of the internet trafficked on. And yet at the same time, as the virus of advertising evolves to the new host, computers and the internet, and to take advantage of the same psychological flaws that we have as humans, it's taking on new tricks. One of these is a phenomenon that is described and pointed out in early psychological experiments by B.F. Skinner. He regards free will as an illusion, and argues that our behaviour essentially just takes the form of a fabric of responses to past stimuli, in particular whether what we did was rewarding or punishing. We are in effect a lot like bacteria that can only sense the environment we're in, moving towards the tasty chemicals, away from the harsh light, etc. And beneath all the pretension, it's this type of impulse that is at the core of our decision-making and our emotional lives. Certain behaviour pathways are being reinforced by these positive reinforcements, and others are being pushed away from by negative reinforcement. The classic experiment involves pigeons and food pellets. Skinner conditioning teaches the pigeons to peck buttons or even play table tennis in order to be fed, purely based on the positive reinforcement. Skinner points out that we too are much like these pigeons, pecking at buttons hoping to receive tiny micro-rewards. This is obviously exploited by countless industries now. One of the key insights is that actually the best way to reinforce a behaviour is not by consistent reinforcement. If the reinforcement is totally predictable and you know what you're going to get, people eventually get bored by the whole game. Instead, what you have to do is make the reinforcement inconsistent. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. This lies behind much of gambling, of course, from the roulette table to the slot machine. But it's also the same impulse that drives us to constantly check our emails, check our social media notifications, check our messages, perhaps dozens or hundreds of times a day. Most of the time we'll see nothing, we'll see spam, adverts, or even more work being piled on that we have to deal with. But every so often, a positive message shows up, some unexpected contact from an old friend, an amusing joke, a message, some news or information that you're glad to hear. And of course, hope subconsciously springs eternal, and we're always subconsciously hoping that the message that we get is going to be good. And so we feel the impulse to check in constantly. Check the Twitter feed, check the Facebook feed, check the emails. The unknown reward schedule, the possibility that this time there might be something worthwhile, drags us endlessly back in again. And if they succeed in the informational bombardment that usually follows, we might end up in that same distracted channel surfing state for most of the time. Go on, admit it. You want to check your messages right now, don't you? I realised that I was doing it so much in the course of typing this paragraph that I had to shut off the Wi-Fi. And this is where we get into the massive and outsized influence of social media, which captures our attention so much of the time that the companies behind it end up being worth billions upon billions of dollars. Here, the killer app was us. In the early days of the internet, the allure for many people to install AOL was to get at some chat rooms, have some interactions with strangers across the world for the novelty of it. Nowadays, you have to ask yourself the question, why are you still on Twitter? Why are you still on Facebook? When both of these websites have taken colossal reputational hits that they have in recent years, when you know that they're scraping your data for ads and attempting to manipulate you and wasting huge quantities of your time. The answer is simple. It's because of who else is there. By becoming the forums through which almost all of normal life and normal social life has transacted, they have become utterly indispensable. 
and each of us contributes to this. Every time you connect with someone via one of these systems, you're effectively giving everyone else better reasons to be there and to put up with it. The fear of missing out on this social interaction being ostracised is there. The allure of the content, the manufactured lives presented by your friends and family, is there. And so advertising creeps further into our lives via the fundamental means by which we interact with each other. And if the way that our society is configured makes us feel ultimately more alone and less connected, and our impulse then is to try and connect even more through the means that are always available to us, our phones and our computer screens, then so much the better, because this prolongs and increases the amount of attention that we will pay on these platforms, and the information that they can harvest about us for the purpose of selling us things and making us pay attention to ads in the future. If I were to criticise this book, which is generally excellent, I wish there was a little more on the techniques that are specifically used by social media companies to attract and keep our attention, and the broader impact this is having on society at large. I know it can get immediately extremely technical when you read into the functioning of algorithms, and that a lot of the deep and subtle behavioural and social psychology that goes into every decision that these companies make is uh, quite subtle. I mean, take for example a decision like adding red receipts to messages, which gives you yet another incentive to continually click and check in on your messages, along with a whole host of subtle social problems that you'll have to deal with. One thing that I think is uh, perhaps not appreciated quite so much is that Yes, advertising might be responsible for 2% of GDP, but if a lot of what is being done in the name of advertising is creating these constant distractions for all of us, the issue goes beyond wasting your time, but also having an economic impact that is potentially far outsized compared to whatever benefit advertising might have for the people who are using it, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. Now, it's fair to say that this wasn't quite the zeitgeist when this book was written in 2015, but it becomes increasingly clear that if all you do and seek to do is blindly optimise the attention that people pay to your website, rather than anything to do with the quality or accuracy of the content, you're going to wreak negative impacts as a consequence. People disproportionately engage with politically extreme, rather than politically anodyne content, for example. This is why YouTube's algorithm will very quickly drag you down a hole towards far-left or far-right content and video essays if you begin to search anything about politics. It's why some of the most popular figures on Twitter and YouTube consistently gain their following and gain attention by putting out provocative opinions from either side of the aisle. It fuels the raging of controversies online that last for days and days. It's why journalism is dying, increasingly given way to opinion pieces fighting endless, stoked-up cultural battles surrounding individual stories. Why people can manufacture a living out of being professionally controversial and end up with millions of followers. The algorithms shape what you watch. Yes, but it also shapes what people produce with that same Skinner conditioning. Perhaps creators start with one kind of content, but realise that being more radical, angrier, more controversial, talking more about issues of gender or sexuality, boosts clicks, boosts views and boosts revenue. Of course, we've seen this before, but seeing it occur algorithmically, in a way that the people who run these companies would like you to believe is now beyond all human control, is a new development, and the contribution of this to the radicalization of the whole of society is now one of the dominant questions that we're facing um, in the next few years. And it, again, it shows what I've said repeatedly and constantly, the clear need for more expertise, not just in science and technology to influence policymakers, but also people who are studying the behavioral impacts of these things. It should be the case that there is a means of regulating these algorithms that have such power over how society is behaving to ensure that they're not just naively optimising for profits or views, because 
if there's nothing done to take into account the social impact of this, the indirect ways in which it's shaping society to be so much worse, then we are all bearing a terrible cost. In the same way as, you know, we had companies for many, many years that burned fossil fuels and that uh, we still seek to impose costs on them for what they would consider to be the negative externalities, that is to say, the damage that's done to the environment and people's health by the pollution they create. We have companies now that are, uh, to in the cause of making profit, polluting our information ecosystem and polluting our consciousnesses even. And until we can both quantify and far more importantly and much more difficult uh, to do, actually enforce restrictions and enforce whether it's taxes or payback for the damage that this is doing to us as a society, you know, these, these bad things will continue to happen, I think. And this, this network nature, creating these filter bubbles that endlessly reinforce rather than challenging the views, it's contributing to the polarisation of society and the, the radicalization of people within the polarisation. I mean, this, none of this should be news to anyone listening because this is just what we've all seen occurring around us in the last few years with terrible consequences. In the book, Wu expresses the fact that the motivating factor behind our great attentional revolts is the desire not to be manipulated, not to be marketed to, not to be controlled. But in this, I think there's something deeper and something different. The side effects and negative byproducts of the toxicity, anger, polarisation and misery that sells so much online. So I do wish that this angle uh, to the buying and selling of attention and the impact that it has on broader society had been explored a little bit more. Wu finishes the book by arguing that we are in fact now, or at least were in 2016, in the midst of another great revolt in this cycle, similar to the people of Paris rejecting their posters, people tuning out of the major TV networks, or people requiring a different kind of advertising to satiate their needs, people leaving trashy penny papers behind or rejecting the uh, inaccurate propositions of snake oil salesmen. He thinks we're in another attentional revolt now. And he points to the rise of Netflix, showing that an ad-free subscription model based on highly immersive and high-quality content rather than clickbait can be successful. And to the rise of ad blockers as well, which allow us some level of control back over our attentional landscape. Obviously, it's never easy to predict the future, but this feels perhaps a little premature. It's true that people have increasingly headed to high-quality niche content. And it's true that people are increasingly supporting the creators more directly through Patreon, for example or through subscription models, which reduce the requirement for ad revenue, and hence return the imperative to creating content that people actually want to watch, rather than something that can suck in their attention unwillingly. These things are important trends, and hopefully they continue, particularly insofar as they can rescue journalism and the creative arts from ad dependence a little bit more. But it's certainly not the case that the advertising bubble has burst, or that the ad industry has collapsed. Not while the social media giants continue to exert as much of a stranglehold on our attention as they do and remain a social necessity, the medium through which the business of life is so often transacted. The advertising bubble has not burst while the machinery of surveillance capitalism, capturing huge amounts of information about each of us, and churning it, processing it into psychological profiles that aim to sell us yet more and more, continues to exist. The stage is set for a great refusal for the latest forms of advertising, but whether we'll successfully escape from the clutches of the attention merchants, for me, is at least a very much an open question. Now, before I finish, I want to talk about an interesting counterpoint to all of this, though, which arises from another question that the book doesn't quite explore in its later stages, or indeed throughout, which is admittedly a lot more difficult to assess. The question is, do these new forms of advertising actually work? 
do they work any better than conventional advertising or brand awareness? This is partially addressed in an article by Jesse Frederick and Mortis Martigen in The Correspondent. Now, what Google and Facebook promise is the ability to deliver the right message to the right consumer at the right time. And they say they do this through precision that can only be obtained through unprecedented surveillance of what we do and who we are, down to the finest detail. Yuval Noah Harari, the much-celebrated author and trumpeted for Homo Deus, argues that we will enter the age where algorithms know us better than we know ourselves, and that the question that humanity now has to deal with is how to direct that age to ensure that the algorithms lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, etc. But do the ads actually work? The contention of this article is that we know far less about how effective ads are than we think we do, and that like other industries, such as financial services or machine learning more generally, where there's not that much evidence of success, this is papered over with a barrage of confusing terminology. What used to be called statistics, or analysing data, now become proprietary transformation functions. The effectiveness of advertising is being determined through correlations. But of course, as anyone who's ever taken any class in statistics will tell you, it's very difficult for us to know the difference between correlation and causation. Can we infer that the ad genuinely influenced someone, or were they likely to do whatever they did anyway? Here's one example of why this is really important in online advertising. When people Google a particular product, a paid ad shows up at the top of the search window. People click regularly on that paid link, and that's how the product determines the effectiveness of its advertising. But if you're Googling Physical Attraction Podcast and you click on the paid ad for Physical Attraction Podcast, there isn't one, I can't afford it, but if you did, how is that proof that the ad influenced your decision? You were probably trying to find the show anyway. This actually happened in the case of eBay's paid ads on Google. They were burning $20 million a year on adverts that just targeted the word eBay. Now they thought that these ads were unbelievably lucrative. After all, nearly everyone who Googled eBay ended up on their site, and many of them ended up making a purchase. Given that all the revenue from those purchases was attributed to the ad, they decided that each dollar they spent on this ad was earning $12 back in revenue. From this, it would seem to make sense to give Google even more money for advertising. It was practically a money-printing machine. But of course, the ads weren't lucrative. It was just that people who searched for eBay were already going to shop there. When the ads were stopped as an experiment, they found that their revenue didn't change at all. So instead of earning the millions of dollars, the ads were just a useless expenditure. They weren't even covering the costs of the ad. Naturally, it was something of an embarrassment for the marketing department, which had long been losing the company huge amounts of money for years, based on something that, in hindsight, should have been obvious. Now this can actually become a self-reinforcing cycle that is totally hidden in the mechanism of how algorithms work in the first place. We've described how the mechanism of surveillance capitalism keeps an eye on you. It tracks your behaviour in minute detail. It wants to determine, through its mathematical understanding, who is most likely to click on the ad, and when they are most likely to do this. But as we talk about endlessly on this show, this is just a blind process of optimization unless it's guided. And what it can actually do is confuse correlation and causation horribly. Because the algorithm, all the algorithm knows is that it wants to find the person who is most likely to click on the ad. But that could easily be the person who is going to click on the ad anyway. The algorithm could simply find the people who are the most frequent clickers on a certain type of ads and present the ad to them. Now this maximises the likelihood of a click, and the click is the metric that they're seeking to maximise. But does that mean that you're maximising a sale that would have been generated without the advertising? That's a much more subtle thing, and much more difficult to infer than the simple metric of clicks. 
the most likely person to click on and respond to the prompt from an advert is someone who would have done so anyway. And without the rigorous testing of whether the ads are actually changing behaviour, it might just be the equivalent of someone paying money to try and convince me to make this podcast when I'm already doing it. So there are two effects. The selection effect, where your algorithms are just successfully identifying people who are about to buy the attention merchants and then presenting them with an ad for that book. They buy it and the ad records success, even though the ad did nothing. That's obviously useless. It's a trivial satisfaction of the maximization problem, I guess you could say. In the same way that you could ensure that you would, for example, never experience pain again by immediately dying. You've not actually solved the problem that you want to solve, although you have technically solved the equation. There's the advertising effect, when the ad changes people's minds and influences their behaviour, actually making them do something that they wouldn't have done otherwise. So we have the selection effect, which is useless, and the advertising effect, which is what we actually want. Economists at Facebook recently conducted experiments that looked into this. They found that often the useless selection effect was ten times more important than the advertising effect. Nominally, an ad might need to be shown to a thousand people to get a sale, but when the selection effect was taken into account, they realised that only one out of ten thousand people was actually influenced to make the sale by the ad itself. The ads were less than ten times as useful as they had been presented as. This study, Gordon et al., makes for fascinating reading, because half the time there was no evidence that the ads worked at all. Another issue, of course, is getting good data. Because the odds of someone actually clicking on an ad and making a purchase are so low, you need huge data to really infer whether you're making a difference at all. After all, if something happens just 1 in 10,000 times, then even a sample of 100,000 might not be near enough to get you serious data that can distinguish signal from noise. The result is massive uncertainty and huge error bars surrounding how effective the advertising actually is. Yet the issue arises that many people erroneously believe that the advertising is effective, that you need to spend a great deal of money on it, and they're ultimately throwing that money away. In the midst of this uncertainty surrounding what can actually influence people, the best way to make decisions is to just assume that what you're doing works, or never really look into the fact that it might not. And you can see again how this optimization process leads to these perverse incentives showing up within companies. The marketing department has to justify its own existence. They can't tell you that they think their adverts are secretly doing nothing. And so they're incentivized to convince people that its advertising strategies are working and to associate any changes in revenue with them. Quoting from the article, Bad methodology makes everyone happy, says David Riley, who used to head Yahoo's economics team and now works for Pandora. It will make the publisher happy. It will make the person who bought the ad happy. It will make the boss of the person who bought the ad happy. It will make the ad agency happy everyone can brag that they had a very successful campaign. This article argues on this basis that there's a bubble in digital advertising waiting to pop when people start to realise that a lot of it is ineffective. Now, arguably this is too simplistic, and it's definitely based on anecdotal evidence, which is kind of ironic, but it is a good counterpoint to the predominant narrative that advertisers are actually extremely successful in manipulating us and what we do, or at least that digital technologies have made them substantially more effective than they were before. And if that is the case, Perhaps we can divert those billions and that 1-2% of GDP towards doing something more useful. Just a thought. I'd love it if you all gave this book a read and told me what you think. I certainly enjoyed it greatly, particularly the historical analysis. What strikes you about it, and what you might think about advertising and the general theme of influencing our attention, trying to control it. It might sound like I'm begging for your attention when I say this, but at least I'm being upfront about it by asking you directly, rather than preying on your psychological flaws. If you have comments, questions, or concerns, please let me know via physicspodcast.com, where you'll find the contact form to get in touch with us. 
If you're a Patreon subscriber, you can get in touch with us with patreon.com slash physicalattraction, and you can message me there. I'm hoping to do some more book club episodes fairly soon, and maybe even make this a regular feature in the future where I decide on the book in advance so that everyone gets a chance to grab it and read it around the same time, so that we can then have a real discussion about what's been read. But if you do have anything to comment on this particular book, I'll try and include it in the next book club episode. Until next time then, take care.